this morning. I'm going to talk rather quickly uh, today, so I want you to kind of listen quickly as well. From the very beginning of Mark's gospel, it's been made clear that Jesus has been ushering in a brand new kingdom that is unlike anything that has come before, and it would look different than anything that would come after. We see this uh, in, from the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. says, the time, uh, the time promised by God has come at, at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And then we read just a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teacher's of religious law. So Jesus is ushering in this, this brand new kingdom that doesn't look like the kingdom or the kingdoms of the world that had come before. This kingdom would be, and it was, and it still is today, met with great resistance and hardship. I can point to several examples in the past or even in the present where we see the kingdom of God is, is often under attack. And there is oftentimes resistance to the values inside God's kingdom. We even see this in Mark chapter 12 in this, in this allegory, in this story that Jesus tells. We see in, even in this opening text that it reveals the resistance of this kingdom. There are servants that are sent to, to, to come to this vineyard that has been prepared. And as the servants come, they are killed. And eventually, the only person left is the son. They send the son thinking that the son will be respected and the son is killed. And we even see a picture here, thinking all the way back to the Old Testament. You know, what did God do? God would send prophets to declare um, warnings of judgment that was coming. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah, all of these prophets who were called by God to speak the word of God. Often some would hear, but many would reject the word that was spoken. But we move into the New Testament and Jesus is sent, the son of God. And even Jesus is rejected. In Jesus's final moments, before the cross, though, we see, and we're going to see today and even next week, that the Jewish leaders now have really ramped up their intense questioning and their interrogation in hope that they will somehow catch Jesus in a trap. Uh, they're they're going to pose questions in a very insincere fashion, hoping that they can trick Jesus, the Son of God, to say something that would lead to his arrest and eventually his crucifixion. We already saw this last week in Mark chapter 11. Look at verses 27 and 28. It says, again, they entered Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him, and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Who gave you the right to do them? And so now the questioning, the interrogation is really reaching an all-time high, and they are posing these questions to Jesus, hoping, hoping that he will say something that he would regret. These questions are surrounding Jewish issues or even concerns. We're going to look today at the issue of paying the taxes back to Caesar or the issue of the resurrection or even the commandments to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus' ability to address these challenges and these interrogations reveal that his authority does not come from some person or entity here on earth 
but the authority of Jesus that is referred to all the way back in Mark 1, 22. He, he teaches as one with real authority, the authority that is unlike that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which means that his authority, it comes from heaven, comes from God himself. This kingdom that called its constituents to be all in was radical according to the norms of the day and required a complete mind shift or mindset shift when it comes to understanding that kingdom. I'm not going to take you all the way back through where we've been thus far in Mark's gospel, but as you know, all throughout his gospel, uh, this, this kingdom that has been ushered in, it's unlike any other kingdom, and it requires you and me, if we're going to be all in, if we're going to say yes to Jesus and no to the ways of the world, it's going to require a, a mindset shift in order for us to adopt and embrace the values of God's kingdom. And this is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Pharisees, this is what they were struggling with because they, they had their mindset and they were not willing to change. They were not willing to, to shift their understanding. And, and so when Jesus comes in and he starts ushering in this new, this new value system and we see it in his teaching, go to Matthew's gospel, chapter five, six, and seven, you have the Sermon on the Mount and he, he really um, uproots their value system and, and he really begins to um, uh, really challenges their way of thinking. And so we have to make certain that we have this mindset shift. We will explore. I want to take just a few moments this morning to explore really these interrogations of Jesus in the temple. And I want to unpack really the response that Jesus has to each question, because I think we will see that it reveals some very important truths regarding his kingdom and his specific call to action. So I want to begin, and I want you to stick with me this morning. Don't tune me out. If you see the word taxes out there, don't, don't just uh, you know, tune me out for the next few moments, because I'm going to begin talking about the interrogation surrounding the payment of taxes. Now let's go to Mark chapter 12. If you still have your Bibles open, you can follow along with me. We're going to pick up in verse 13. It says, later the leader sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. So already we know the motive. The motive behind this question has nothing to do with what are we really supposed to do. The motive behind this question is incredibly insincere and their only desire is to trap Jesus, to get him to say something that would lead to his arrest. And so the motive is impure. Then we see in verse 14, teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? And Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy. He saw through their impure motives and he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, Jesus said, and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. What's interesting is all throughout Mark's gospel, the teaching of Jesus always amazed the crowds. 
they were always intrigued by what Jesus had to say. And, and I, I thought by now that the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have figured out that, that Jesus would see right through their impure motives, but they didn't. They were trying anything they could to, to trap him up, to, to trick him into saying something he would regret. Now, I want to talk about this interrogation. What is, what, is it, what is even happening here? What does Jesus mean when he talks about give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And, and, and what's really behind this? Now, in order to understand this, we need to first of all understand the historical context, um, which is key to comprehending their interrogation of Jesus in the first place. So let me just give this to you quickly. Um, uh, some of you I know could care less about history, but in order to understand what Jesus is saying, his response, we need to understand really what is happening in this particular day. This payment of a tax was an explosive issue. It was a hot topic. We, we have hot topic issues today. Um, and, and there's all kinds of things that if we bring it up, man, it will stir a crowd. It will stir a group of people. And it might, it might burn a fire in you that, that you've never felt before because it's an explosive issue. There's, there's cultural hot topic issues. There's personal you know, hot topic issues. Um, you know, there are certain things that, that really just start to get our blood to boil. Well, this was one of these issues. This was a hot topic issue. Uh, it was an explosive issue in the day, this payment of a tax it would really start to stir a group of people. The sensitivity of this issue is actually rooted in the political and sociological context of the day. And let me give you an example. All the way back in AD 6, how many of you were around? Didn't think so. Not one person. <laughs> um, all right, we'll talk about the resurrection, reincarnation, all of those things later. So I don't think you were, but just, just uh, a side note. AD 6, AD 6, not 86, but AD 6. Judea became a Roman province. The Romans then started to uh, issue a head tax, which was distinct from the property tax they already had imposed on those living in Judea. And because of this, this extra tax that was placed upon the people living in Judea, it, it really began to provoke some people to issue or, or lead in a revolt. Provoked a man by the name of Judas of Galilee to lead a revolt because God's own land had been placed at the service of foreigners. And this man, Judas of Galilee, was actually killed. We read about him in Acts chapter five. Look in Acts five, look at verse 37. It says, after him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all of his followers were scattered. Well, he issued this revolt. He got followers because these taxes had been imposed upon the Judea people, Judean people, and it really caused their blood to boil. It was a hot topic issue, therefore leading to this revolt. People became concerned that if they paid this Roman, this tax to the Romans on the land that belonged to God, that they were going to be unfaithful to God. So you can begin to see some of the, the ethical issues that they were wrestling with. Well, if, if we pay this tax and this land belongs to God, but we pay it to the Roman people, does this mean that, does this mean that I'm being unfaithful to, to God and his law? So now there is this, not only is it just a political issue, now there's some ethical issues that start to arise. 
There was a group of people called the Zealots. The Zealots were passionate. They were, they were ready to bring reform and revival in a very um, violent fashion. They were the ones that were trying to stir up some of these revolts. They wanted to come in. They wanted to, to destroy the Romans. Um, and, and so there's this group of people, the Zealots, and they refused altogether to pay this tax because in their mind it indicated that Caesar had dominion and rule over them. The interrogators, interrogators They demanded a yes or a no from Jesus on their insincere question because they probably thought that if Jesus most likely, maybe he's like one of these zealots. Maybe if if they bring up this hot topic issue of, of paying taxes to Jesus, maybe they can really get that blood to boil in him and maybe he would start to allow his emotions to get the better of him and say something that he would regret later on. So in their minds, if we can bring up this hot topic issue, here's what they think. Either he's gonna say yes or no and either response, yes or no, would cause an issue with somebody. For example, if he rejects the tax, like the rebels who revolted, then he would be arrested just like Judas of Galilee. But if he endorses the tax, and he says, yes, go ahead and pay taxes to Caesar, in their minds, he would likely undermine the support of his followers and maybe even call into question his messiahship. And and so for the the Pharisees, they think they got Jesus in a corner, and and they're expecting either a yes or no question. No, don't don't pay the tax. All right, we're going to arrest you because you're going against the, the political law of the day. Or yes, pay taxes to Caesar. And then in their minds, they think that Jesus will lose the crowd of followers that have committed themselves to him. Well, Jesus was fully aware of their insincere and sneaky motives. So what does he do? He requests to see a coin. Notice he himself doesn't have one of the coins. He says, give me one of these coins. And, and I'm reading a little bit here, probably between the lines, but I can imagine they were waiting for a yes or no response. And when he says, give me a coin, they're probably, you know, like searching through their pockets. We're in the temple courts, keep in mind. So they're searching their pockets, trying to find one of the coins that would be used for this particular tax. This coin that was used would be a silver denarius. It would have the image of Caesar, the emperor, on this coin. And on the back of it, it would have a a proclamation to some form of Roman ideology. And so in a sense, this coin that, that would have been kept in the pockets of some was sort of like a portable idol. Wherever they went, they were carrying around a coin that had the image of Caesar on one side or the, the emperor, and on the back side had some proclamation of the ideology of the Roman, uh, of the Roman people. And so he says, let me see a coin. And he says to them, whose image is on the coin? And they respond with Caesar. And he says to them, tell them to give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Essentially, and I want you to catch this, essentially what he is saying to them is, I want you to give Caesar's idols back to him. They belong to him. They don't belong to me. One owes Caesar. What what Jesus is saying is one owes Caesar what bears his image and what bears his name, which is why he says whose image is on the coin. Well, it's Caesar. And and on the back of it, it it has a proclamation to the Roman ideology. So he says we, we need to give back to Caesar what belongs to him, what bears his name and what bears his image. But then this is the question I want us to consider. What then are the implications for us today? What are we to do 
I don't think any of us in this room are carrying around coins that have an image of Caesar on it or, or an emperor or, um, or some ideology to, to Rome. So, so what are the implications? Is this about whether we are to pay taxes or not pay taxes? No. And I'm sorry if you thought it was, but that's not what Jesus had in mind. Here's some things for us to consider very simply. Number one, we owe God what bears his image and his name. What bears his image and what bears his name, we do. Humanity, going all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 26, let us create man in our own image. He created them male and female in the image, in the imago Dei, the image of God. And so if the instruction is give to Caesar what bears his name in his image, give back to him. And the instruction to us then is give to God what bears his image in his name. What, what then are we to give to God? We bear his image. We bear his name as children of God. Therefore, we owe God our whole selves. That, that's simply what Jesus is saying to those that are present in the temple today. It's not just about paying taxes or giving back to Caesar what belongs to them. There's something deeper, something more important. He's saying, and keep in mind, he's about ready to be crucified, and he's saying to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that, that we need to give back to God what belongs to him. And it's not just some coin, not something tangible here on earth. No, we need to give God ourselves because we bear his image because we've been created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. We owe God ourselves. Tertullian said this. He said, render to Caesar the image of Caesar, which is on the money, and unto God the image of God, which is in man, so that thou givest unto Caesar money and unto God thine own self. Later on in Mark chapter 12, this will be fleshed out a little bit more, talking about total allegiance because there's going to be this question asked about which is the greatest commandment, and he's going to say, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Number two, Jesus opposes and rejects this idea of militant nationalism, but he does not propose that followers drop completely out of society altogether. Now, this was the, this was the approach of some. There was a group of people in the early days called the Qumran community, and they were desert people, and they, they really um, distanced themselves altogether from anything that was worldly, and, and, and they were isolated from the world. And, and we know from Scripture, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that we are called to be citizens, not here on earth, but citizens of heaven. But, but our heavenly citizenship does not give us a right to then just ignore the fact that we are still here on earth and there is still a citizenship that we have here on earth. We just have to prioritize and remember what is more important. So being citizens of heaven does not exempt us from being good citizens here on earth. That doesn't give us this, this, you know, this card that we can pull out and say, well, I'm a citizen of heaven, so I can do whatever I want to do here on earth as a citizen here uh, in the United States. That's not what is implied. This is not an excuse to disengage from the world. Why? Because we are called, what does Jesus say? We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And how, let, let me just make it as simple as I can this morning. How can we, as people of God, how can we be salt? How can we be light? How can we express the good news of Jesus Christ if we disengage ourselves altogether from this world? 
Now, we certainly need to caution ourselves and we need to make certain that, that there are values that we embrace, that we are living a godly lifestyle here in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And that is a, that's a tricky thing to do, especially in our culture today. But that's why we need to be people of the word of God. That's why we need to be people who pray and have communion with the Holy Spirit because there are times where we need that direction and that discernment to know, is this right? Is this from God or is this not from God? And, and if we don't become people of the word, if we are not people of prayer, then it's going to be very easy to say, well, I, I think this is from God, when in reality, this is from the world. And, and so as believers, we, we need to make certain that we're growing and understanding what does it look like to be citizens of heaven that are presently living as citizens here on earth? What does that look like and how do we flesh that out? And I need to, I need to go, I need to talk quickly. Um, Number three, God alone is the only one worthy of receiving our everything. That, that's essentially, let me, just, let me just summarize what he's saying to those that ask about the coin. What he's saying is that God alone is the only one, the only person who is worthy to receive our everything. Give back to Caesar his idols. Give it to him. It has his image on it. It has his name on it. But I want you to give yourself wholly and completely to the only person who deserves your everything. The Christian owes Caesar something, but not everything. Our allegiance must be directed toward God alone. And we're going to see even later that this will be fleshed out more. Number two, let's talk about the interrogation of the resurrection, the viability of the resurrection. Let me read this to you quickly. Uh, then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They pose this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies, leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. And Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That is key uh, to Jesus's response. Verse 25, for when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses and the story of the, the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the God of the dead, you have made a serious error. Um, Jesus is at the point now, he knows that he's gonna be crucified soon. He doesn't really beat around the bush anymore. Uh, he just kind of gets to the point and, and he says very clearly, you are in serious error in what you are thinking and what you are saying. Now, let me talk a little bit about where this question even stems from. The question came from the mouth of those who don't even believe in the resurrection in the first place. There is a group of people, religious leaders called the Sadducees. Uh, they were pro priest party. Uh, they, they believe that the Pentateuch alone, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they believe that the Pentateuch alone was binding. Everything else um, really had no value for them whatsoever. They rejected any theological innovation that was rooted outside of those first five books of the Bible. And so keep in mind, their theology is based on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the reason for their disbelief in the resurrection because there doesn't really seem to be anything mentioned about a resurrection in those first five books. At least their understanding of scripture did not imply that. And so this was really their first appearance on the scene. Uh, we don't hear a lot about the Sadducees, but we see they come into play with this very specific question. And they attempted to put Jesus into a corner. 
with their devious hypothetical conundrum. All right, so, so they pose this theory. Their theory was actually rooted in some Old Testament law on marriage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says, if two brothers are living, and keep in mind, this is where their theology comes from solely and only from the first five books uh, of the Old Testament. So they go right to the Old Testament. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law law, the first son she bears to him will be considered the son of a dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. I don't have time to go into the depths of this, but if you read Luke, uh, sorry, Ruth, Ruth really, it it takes this into play as well. If you remember, Ruth's husband died. um, And and so eventually Boaz, who is a relative of Ruth, will marry Ruth. And so we see this law come into play. And so this is really the basis of their hypothetical conundrum in the first place. So they say, what if there's seven brothers? They all marry this widow. They all die. And there is no son to carry on the inheritance. What happens in the resurrection? Who is this uh, gal really married to? So in their case study, all seven men died. No children come forth. So in the resurrection, they're trying to discern and they're asking Jesus. And keep in mind, they don't even believe in the resurrection in the first place. But whose wife will she be? So Jesus responds to their hypothetical conundrum. And he indicated that they are deceived for two reasons. One, they don't even know the scriptures. And two, they were underestimating the power of God. Now, he corrected their view of the resurrection life. And by that, I mean he said a few things that indicated, first of all, that the resurrection is not just a continuation of life here on earth and only longer. There is something much more. We get a picture of what, what, what the resurrection is like, even in Mark's gospel, Remember when Jesus is transfigured, uh, Moses and Elijah, there is this very unique experience that occurs. So we get a glimpse of what the resurrection looks like. It's not just, oh, you know, now life is going to continue here on earth. It's just going to be longer. No, there's so much more to it than just that. And we even get a picture uh, in Revelation. I don't have time to read it. If you want to jot it down, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, will give you a glimpse uh, of of really the the relationship of what, what the resurrection will look like, and it has more to do with worship in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and I'm going to say more about that here in just a moment. So their mindset and focus was way off. When they're asking this question, whose wife she will be at the resurrection, they really were totally way off from what the resurrection was really about in the first place. And then he corrected their biblical ignorance. He takes them to the burning bush passage in Exodus chapter 3. And he says here, remember, it is referred to, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, keep in mind, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already died. They died in, 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 in uh, Genesis. And so we get to Exodus, and, and God is speaking to Moses in this burning bush encounter. And he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And keep this in mind, the living God would not identify himself as the God of some dead corpse. I am the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Later, the angel in Mark's gospel will testify that God is more powerful than death. Mark 16, verse 6, the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Now look, this is where they laid his body. And so there's several things that emerge here for people who are a part of another kingdom that we need to understand. Number one, Christianity offers the promise of resurrection that cannot be found anywhere else and is central to the Christian faith. 
I don't, I don't have really time. Uh, this, is, this is important and this is key because if we get it wrong when it comes to uh, the resurrection, I, I want you to hear this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is incredibly crucial, necessary, vital, and central to our faith. If we, if we eliminate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith crumbles. Um, we're, we're standing on something incredibly hopeless if we eliminate the resurrection. And so I want you to see that, that Christianity offers the promise of resurrection that cannot be found in any other religion or any other organization, and it is central to our faith. And, and we read this in 1 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. And so Paul makes it clear if Christ is not raised, then, then we are still dead in our sins and we have no hope, which is why we are resurrection people, which is why the resurrection is vital because we, we believe that Jesus Christ is indeed raised. And because of that, we also believe that we will one day experience that resurrection. There's a couple of things I wanna mention. First of all, in regards to resurrection elsewhere, there are some people that believe in a blessed afterlife no matter how they relate to God here on earth. And what I simply mean by that is that mo there are some people, there's a group of people, universalists, who will believe that just simply that, that once we leave this earth, no matter our relationship with God, whether we've placed our faith in him or not, that we will spend eternity with him. That is false. That is incorrect. There are some that believe in reincarnation. There are some that believe in complete annihilation altogether, which means that, that once our life ends here on earth, there is nothing beyond this life. And that's really kind of uh, an interesting concept because that will then lead to the reality that I need to live my best life here and now because there's nothing after this life. And I think there's a lot of people uh, that, that maybe you know that have that mentality. They may not say that, but how they live their life implies that because they're living in such a way um, that the, they're living in such a way where they're living their best life here and now thinking that there is nothing beyond this life. Some are so consumed with life here and now that no thought is even given to the afterlife at all. John Bailey says this, if the, if the individual can commune with God, then he must matter to God. And if he matters to God, he must share God's eternity. For if God really rules, he can't be conceived as scrapping what is precious in his sight. Number two, then, the reality of the resurrection must maintain a God-centered perspective. And let me try to capture this quickly. The Sadducees, what were they doing? They were making it all about themselves. They were asking the question, whose wife will she be? They were missing the importance and the value of the resurrection of Jesus Christ altogether. And sometimes we do the very same thing. We'll think about you know, the reunion that we will have in heaven, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but we make the resurrection more man-centered or more human-centered than it is God-centered. We, we, we think about the reunion that will occur in heaven. We'll think about the relationships that we will have, and we think about having this house next to somebody that I deeply love and, and, and value and cherish, and we go through this kind of, we create this kind of uh, utopia that we would like to have here on earth, but it's gonna be what occurs in in heaven. And again, I'm not saying we should never dream about and think about those things, but that's very human man-centered in regards to the resurrection. And any image that you and I come up with is going to fall way short of what the resurrection, what what heaven or what eternity really looks like. Here's the problem. This man-centered perspective 
of the resurrection, it forces our meeting with God, our communion with God, which is really what the resurrection is all about. It forces that idea to go to the back seat. When we start coming up with these ideas that the resurrection, I, you know, I can't wait to have this beautiful house next to my, my grandma or my mom. And again, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing to think about. But when all we dwell about is that, we're missing the most important thing when it comes to the resurrection, communion with Christ, communion with God. And that's what happened with the Sadducees. They were so focused. Whose wife will she be? Who's she going to be married to? What kind of relationship is she, is she going to have? And Jesus says, you're, you're missing the point. It's not what the resurrection is about. The resurrection is about communion with God. Jesus doesn't provide exact images of the resurrection in this text. Really, the only similarity between earth and heaven is the relationship with God will continue throughout all eternity. Not even death can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I don't want us to miss the value and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I, you know, when we talk about the resurrection, we can have all of these images that we want. But folks, when it comes down to the very end of it, when we think about what, what is the resurrection life even gonna look like, I really don't know. But what I do know is we're gonna be so enamored by the presence of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God that was slain, that, that when we get to heaven, I, I know it's hard for our finite minds to even think about it here. We, we think of those images. We, we create those stories in our head of what it's gonna look like, but I'm just telling you, when we get to heaven, those thoughts, and, and I, you know, we always jokingly say, you know, what, que- what one question are you gonna ask God when you get to heaven? And that's great. We can talk about those things, but I'm telling you, when we get to heaven in the resurrection life, we're not gonna be thinking about this question or that question. All we're gonna be focused on is worship, lifting our hands, glorifying, praising the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why I've said before, that what we do on Sunday morning is just a foretaste. It is just a small glimpse. Corporate worship is a small glimpse of what one day heavenly worship will one day look like. I'm not trying to destroy your images of the resurrection life, but I'm just telling you that we are to be, we we cannot become so consumed with this man-centered perspective that all we think about is is who am I going to live by? Who am I going to see? What question am I going to ask God? No, in the resurrection life, we're going to be so focused and so excited excited and passionate about worshiping the king, then nothing else will matter. And, and that's, that's what, and they missed it, the Sadducees. Their mindset was, they, they were asking those questions. Whose wife is she gonna be? And they're trying to trip Jesus up and he's saying, you're missing the point. There's, there's none of this, you know, married or not married. Whose wife will she be? That's not the point of the resurrection. The resurrection is about communion, eternal communion with Jesus Christ, which leads me to this point, the hope of a resurrection and the possibility of eternal communion with God. Folks, that should motivate us to be on mission for God now. 